Let's go to the Lord and commit this time uh, to Him now. Father, as we come to this time to where we look at Your Word and as we reflect upon Your Word and hear from the teaching of Your Word, Father, we pray that Your Spirit would uh, do uh, what it does when Your Word is taught and that it would work in our hearts in such a way that Your Word would prove to be profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness this morning. Father, we pray that Your Word would convict those of us that need convicting, that it would encourage and exhort those of us uh, that need encouragement and exhortation, and that it would comfort uh, those of us that need comforting this morning. So, Father, we pray these things to You because we know that You alone are the one that has the power to do them. So, Father, we pray that You would do them this morning and that we would be drawn closer to You and that our love and affection for Christ and the Gospel would be deepened and that we would be transformed as Your people this morning. In the name of Christ, we do pray, trusting in His power and His power alone. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn uh, to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and we'll be uh, continuing our, our series on Jesus and happiness. And if you don't have a Bible with you, if you look uh, in front of you, there should be a Red Pew Bible. And if you turn to page 809 in that Bible, page 809, you will be able to find where we are. So the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament, chapter 5, and looking at just one verse this morning, verse number 4, as we continue uh, talking about Jesus and happiness, and specifically uh, this morning about when mourning equals happiness. When mourning equals happiness. And as we talked about last week, if you weren't here, uh, just a brief uh, review. We talked about this word blessing uh, and blessed and and this passage here, which is Jesus' sermon that He's uh, uh, preaching to the people there and as He's teaching them. And this word blessed could also be translated as happy. And I'm not talking about just kind of a superficial happiness, but a a deep sense of peace and contentment, a a joy uh, that only comes from God. And so here Jesus, some 2,000 years ago, was telling people how they could experience happiness and joy. And we would all admit uh, that if there is one thing that we ultimately all seek, it would be to be happy. Uh, That if we're happy then we're not wanting anything else. And so whatever house we have, or whatever car we have, or or whatever family situation that we have, if we're happy, then we're we're content, and we are satisfied uh, with our lot in life. And so Jesus here is telling us how to be happy. Uh, So a very relevant message by our Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. So let's look at uh, chapter 5, verse 4, and we'll just read this one verse here, where Jesus says, Blessed, or happy, are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You know, it's amazing, uh, Jesus' words here. Because if uh, you think about them for a second, think about what Jesus is saying here. Right off the bat, He's saying, if you want to be happy, then you need to, to mourn. And you, you know, if you're, if, if, if he was up here saying this, maybe you would be someone that, you know, hit, hits the guy next to you and says, I think he lost his notes. Or I think this teleprompter is messed up a little bit. You hear what he's saying? He, he's, he's got this message on happiness here. And he's saying to be happy, uh, then you need to be mournful. 
And you think, oh, wait a second. Isn't mournful the, the opposite of happiness? Isn't that uh, 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 two things that are the opposite of each other? That's like saying, well, if you want to be full, then you need to be hungry. Or if you uh, want to have your thirst quenched, then you need to be thirsty. If you want to be rich, uh, you need to get rid of all your money. And you're thinking, wait a second, that really doesn't make sense. Jesus is here having this message about, about happiness, and now He's talking about mourning. Doesn't He know those two things uh, don't go together? And so what in the world is Jesus saying when He says, Blessed are those who mourn, for, those, for they shall be comforted. Now when we think about this for a second, uh, anybody who has lived any amount of life uh, as an, at least approaching the age of an adult has mourned at some point or another. And we've all lost people that we have loved. Some of us have lost uh, parents. Some of us have lost children. Some of us have lost uh, a spouse. Uh, some of us have lost brothers and sisters. There, there is nobody in here this morning that has not mourned to some degree in their life. And for some of us, it's been more bitterness and more mourning uh, than, than for others. But we all know that there is mourning. Now, but the reality is, is that if we think about this, not everyone who mourns is blessed or happy. And not everyone who mourns is comforted. So we would say, well, we all mourn, but not everyone who mourns is comforted. And not everyone who mourns receives this blessing or happiness that Jesus is talking about. So there must be something that Jesus is talking about here that is unique to His followers. Because He's not just saying everyone who mourns in general will be comforted, and everyone who's comforted will be blessed. Because again, we know that there are many situations that we know people who mourn and there is little to no comfort, and there is little to no happiness or blessedness. So what exactly is Jesus talking about when He says, blessed are those who mourn? I think when we understand this verse in light of the verse before it, which we talked about last week, when Jesus talked about blessed or happy are those who are poor in spirit, for what? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when we talked about what does it mean to be poor in spirit, about how it meant that, that, it meant that we, we understand our sin, and we recognize that the cause of our sin, we, we are separated from God. And that not only do we have the sin problem, but that we don't have any ability to fix it. And it makes us poor in spirit. It makes us uh, humble. It, it brings us to our knees because we have to come before God acknowledging our trespasses, acknowledging our rebellion, acknowledging our sin. And on top of that, acknowledging our inability to do anything about it. And so that the kingdom of God comes to those who are poor in spirit through faith in Christ. Because Christ has done what we can't do. He has lived the righteous life and He has paid the penalty for our sin. And so in light of that, it seems that Jesus is once again not talking about just general mourning, but a specific type of mourning. A type of mourning that is related to a specific issue, and that specific issue is our sin. And that there should be mourning over our sin, and the result of that is comfort, and the result of that comfort is a happiness or, or a blessedness. So, so in one sentence you, you could say that if you have not experienced the, uh, the you, or you can't know the joy of Christ until you know the sorrow of your sin. Or you can't experience the, the peace and happiness of eternal life 
until you have stared the bitterness of death in the face. And so, this is what Jesus is talking about. And to better explain this, I think that we can look at the life of the Apostle Paul. So what we're going to do now is we're going to turn to the book of Romans in your Bible. So uh, if you have your Bibles, it's just a couple books over. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, and then the book of Acts, and then the book of Romans. If you have a Red Pew Bible, it's on page 943. So we're going to go over to Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8. And we're going to look at a section of passages here to where Paul gives us, I think, an example of what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Where Paul is going to be reflecting upon his own spiritual journey and his own spiritual condition. And what we're going to see in Paul is how he is talking about how he goes from mourning to comfort. And that comfort is the source of his happiness and his blessedness. And so that we are, we're going to be able to see what Jesus is talking about in the personal life of the Apostle Paul. And so as Jesus exhorted uh, people to be like Him, and Paul says, as He is like Christ, we are to be like Paul. And so this morning I'm exhorting you that as we look at the Apostle Paul, and as he reflects upon his own personal journey, that we would be asking the question, if this is a journey that we could describe for ourselves. Has the things that has happened to the Apostle Paul happened to me personally? Has it happened to you personally? Have you been mournful over your sin? And have you been comforted in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? So let's turn to Romans chapter 7. We're going to read uh, verse 7 uh, through uh, toward the end of the chapter. And it's a long passage, but I want you to follow along. And it's, uh, I tried to break it up, but I think we just need to read the whole thing because it helps us see uh, what Paul is wrestling with. As he is describing an aspect of his spiritual journey, we're going to see some of the things that, that he's wrestling with. So Romans chapter 7, uh, verse 7. And in this section, we're going to, to, to simply see that mourning is the proper response to our sin. So you say, what, what's the proper response to my sin? And what's the proper response to your sin? And according to this passage, I think the proper response is mourning. And, and we're going to see this from the Apostle Paul. So what does he, how does he begin in verse 7 of chapter 7 of the book of Romans? He says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. And through it killed me. So that the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So Paul simply reflecting upon the fact that it's through the law. Through God's word that he became convicted of his sin. So, he, so he's simply saying something that I hope is true for all of us this morning. Is that we, as we hear uh, the word of God preached. As we're in Sunday school. As we read God's word. One of the things that happens is that we are convicted of sin. This is one of the reasons, one of the many reasons, it's not the only reason, but one of the reasons that it's so important to continually gather together as the body of Christ. While we gather together on Sunday morning and Wednesday night, while we should be reading our Bibles, 
because it convicts us of sin. That watching movies doesn't convict us of sin. Listening to music doesn't convict us of sin. It is the truth of God's Word that points out our sin. And Paul is simply expressing how that happened to him personally. And it goes on in verse 13. He says, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. And it's amazing here as Paul begins writing here, he begins thinking about how he, he knows these right things to do, but he continues to do sinful things. I hope it is a, in some way uh, an encouragement to us all that the things that we struggle with are the same things that the Apostle Paul struggled with. So he goes on. He says in verse 16, Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Did you hear what Paul is saying here? He's saying, I want to do all these good things. I know what's good. I know it's good to love my wife. I know it's good not to be angry. I know it's good to love my neighbor as myself. I know it's good to love the Lord God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. He's saying, I know all those things are good. I see them in the law. I want to do them. But guess what? He says that I do not have the ability to carry it out. Could anybody in here identify with the Apostle Paul? I could. How many times have we resolved to say, okay, I'm going to be nice to that person, my coworker. I'm not going to lose my temper with them. I'm not going to lose my temper with my kids. I'm not going to lose my temper with my spouse. I'm going to go the extra mile. You know, you reflect on all these things at the end of the, of the week, work week, and you think, well, Susie, who has the cubicle next to me, you just, she's the, the grumpiest, complainingest, most person. And, and next week, I'm not going to, I'm going to be positive. Or so-and-so likes to gossip, and I know that's wrong. So when I see him next week, I'm not going to gossip with him. I'm just going to ignore him. I'm going to walk away. And what happens next week? Same thing as happened last week, right? That what you know in your mind to be right is nearly impossible to follow through with. And Paul is simply reflecting that, that this, he's, he's, usually, he's talking about himself personally. So he's not talking in abstract terms. He's giving a personal example of his own personal life. So in verse 21, he says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So just think about here the point that Paul is at. And he's got here because he is personally reflecting upon 
his spiritual condition. Which is something that we all need to do. So he's sitting there and he's thinking about the day or the week. And and he's thinking about, I know all these things are good. But I can give you this never ending list of the way I have failed to do all these things. Because he's saying that, that in my mind, you know, I want to do right. He says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. So he says, I delight in these things. I, I, I read God's Word and I say, yes, that's, that's true. But when I look at my life and my actions, it's almost like he's, he, he's saying, I'm almost like two people. One part of me is, is delighting in the law of God. And the other part of him is saying, he says, that it's, it, it's uh, waging war against the law. And making him captive so that there, there's, there's this battle. A lot of times in the cartoons, you, you see there's the, you know, the, uh, you know, when the person is deciding what to do, you know, the little angel comes up, and then all the other side, poof, the little devil comes up. Uh, in some ways, Paul is saying that that's how my life is. To where, to where I'm wanting to do good, but at the same time, there is this, this sin that almost seems to consume me, that I'm held captive to it, that's almost overpowering me. I'm always going to drown in it. And he's saying this, this war is waging in my own flesh. This battle between sin and doing what I know to be true to God's Word. So what condition does that leave the Apostle Paul in? Because he, he's recognizing this. He's reflecting upon it. He sees it in his own life. And I know he sees it in the lives of those around him and the churches that he started in the Christians that he's led, the men and women that he's led to Christ. But notice what he says in verse 24. Notice what he says. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So he gets to this point and at the end he just says, Wretched man am I. And this is the Apostle Paul. This isn't Pharaoh. This isn't King Herod. This isn't Caesar. This is the man who wrote the majority of the New Testament. The greatest apostle and missionary the church has ever known. And he's saying, Wretched man am I. Who will deliver me from this body of death? So we see that as Paul reflects upon his sin, he comes to the point of of personally mourning over his sin because it's it's a battle and he's losing the battle. And to where he's saying, wretched man am I. Who's going to deliver me? So when we think about uh, uh, mourning and what mourning is, in some degree it's just the absence of any hope. Because Paul is at a point here, if the Bible ended, you say Paul is hopeless. He has no hope. Because he's asking this, he's realized the wretchedness of his own condition and the hopelessness of his own condition. All as a result of the sin that, that battles within. So if you had a similar experience to the Apostle Paul, to where you have actually taken the time to honestly reflect upon the sinfulness of your life. To be honest about it. To think about, this is what God's Word says. And this is the way my life is lived. This is what Paul was doing. And the point he came to was not that, boy, I sure am doing a good job. God must be so proud of me, an apostle, planting all these churches, and writing all these books in the New Testament, leading all these people to Christ. 
I'm probably on God's honor roll up there. On the president's list. A little star by my name. That's not what he says. Wretched man am I. Who would deliver me from this body of death? He was mournful. He was mournful. So have you ever come to the point where you're mournful over your sin? Does it bother you at all? One preacher, in reflecting upon this, he writes in describing what mournfulness should be, he says, As I confront God and His holiness and contemplate the life that I am meant to live, I see myself, my utter helplessness and hopelessness. I discover my quality of spirit and immediately that makes me mourn. I think that's what is happening with the Apostle Paul. That he has recognized God's holiness through his law. He's recognized his own deficiencies because of the sin in his life. And the result is that he has recognized that he is utterly hopeless and helpless before God. And therefore that leads him to a mournful state. So have you been mournful over your sin? Now, Jesus didn't say that if you're just mournful over your sin, then you'll be happy. But He said, blessed are those who mourn for wine. For they will be, what? Comforted. So what else does Paul have to say here? Thankfully, the book of Romans keeps going. And we're going to see that comfort is the proper response to what Jesus has done in response to our sin. So we saw that mourning is the proper response to our sinfulness. But now comfort is the, our, our, our feeling comfort is the proper response to, to understanding what Jesus has done as a result of our sin. Notice what Paul says in verse 25. He says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So notice that transition from mourning to what? To now he's all of a sudden, he, he's been mournful over his sin, but guess what? He's now receiving comfort. Where he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And notice what he says in the first four verses of chapter 8. This is the source of the great comfort. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now you have to hear this verse in light of what Paul has said in chapter 7, to where he has been mournful over his sin. He, he, he's depressed. He's, he's battling his sin. He's recognized that he's hopeless and helpless. And all of a sudden he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Why? Because of verse 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. One of the ways that Satan gets us as Christians is that he keeps us in the mournful state. To where some of us have guilt over sin that we committed 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And Satan hangs it over our head saying that you have to stay at verse 24. You have to stay to where you are saying, wretched man am I. Who will deliver this body of death? And if you haven't come to faith in Christ, then you need to stay there until you come to faith in Christ. But if you've come to faith in Christ and you claim Christ as your Lord, you can't stop at verse 24. It's good to mourn over your sin, but then be comforted with the gospel. 
that the Word of God convicts us of our sin, it brings us to the state of hopelessness, but then it lifts us up in the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Where Paul can write, Wretched man am I who will deliver me from this body of death. And then two verses later he's writing, Therefore now there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So everything that I wrote in chapter 7 is true, but guess what? There is no condemnation for me. So I'm comforted. I receive comfort because of verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So he recognized that he couldn't do all these things in chapter 7 and then chapter 8. He said, guess what? God did it. God did what I couldn't do. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Why? But how? By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for our sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walked not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So he knows that righteousness is required of him, but he knows he doesn't have that righteousness. It brings him to a point of mourning, but then he's comforted because he remembers the Gospel, which is that Christ lived a righteous life for us. I don't have to be righteous. Jesus is righteous enough for me, and He's righteous enough for you. I don't have to pay my penalty for sin. Jesus paid it for me. His death is sufficient for my death and your death. And the death of all of God's people. So there is the comfort that when we turn to Christ in faith, that specifically we're having faith that His righteousness is sufficient for us, that His death is sufficient for us, and that His resurrection is sufficient for us. So that we go from mourning to comfort. And it's not just a one-time experience, but something that should be done every day. To where every day we, we, we reflect upon our sin... We do chapter 7. We get to verse 24. We're mournful of our sin. But we read on. And we are comforted by the Gospel. Every day. So that we're mournful and we're comforted. We're mournful and we're comforted. Never stopping in verse 24. But keeping going. And finding comfort. And the result of that is happiness. Not some superficial happiness that we get when our team wins, but the happiness that comes in only what Paul can write. In verse 18, notice what he says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, and hoped that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, We groan inwardly. So here we see the mourning. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly to the comfort for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. So we groan with sin, but we're comforted in the hope of the gospel. 
Sometimes it is best, or, or not sometimes, many times, uh, hymns can put to words uh, deep theological truths uh, better than anything else can. It was so fitting that uh, Megan read the, the, the thing about John Newton when we began our service. And John Newton was the man who wrote Amazing Grace. And Amazing Grace is one of the best hymns that conveys this truth that Jesus is talking about. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, and in the comfort there is happiness. And if you open your hymn books, open your hymn books to page 104. 104. A hymn that, if we don't know it, the words of it, we at least have heard it at least once in our lives, I would suspect. Amazing grace, how sweet this sound. Now, as was read at the beginning of the service, this was written by a man named John Newton, who was a former slave trader. So, and as the song the choir sang about, the, the, the concept of amazing. You can't understand amazing until you understand what is not amazing. And the mournful state is what is not amazing. It's mournful. So that the grace is amazing because he has tasted of the mournful state. So notice how John Newton, when he's writing this hymn, how he goes back and forth between the mournful and the comfort. The mournful and the comfort. Notice what he says. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Now is that comfort or mournful? Comfort, right? How, how sweet the sound. Why, why is it a sweet sound? Why is it amazing grace? Why is it amazing and why is it a sweet sound? Why? That saved a wretch like me. Now who else called himself a wretch? Paul did. You think John knew that? I'm sure he knew that. I'm sure that was partly what he was reflecting on when he wrote this hymn. So is that mournful or is that comfort? It's, it's mournful. He's saying a wretch like me, but the comfort is that I was saved. I was once lost, mournful or comfort. Mournful, but now I'm found. Comfort. I was blind, mournful, but now I see. Comfort. Verse 2. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. Verse 3, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Mournful or comfort? Through many dangers, toils, and snares. He is the bitterness of life. Mournful over these toils and snares. But the comfort, His grace has brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. And then He ends in 4 and 5 with great lines of comfort. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. When we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. So you cannot know the joy of Christ until you know the sadness and bitterness of your own sin. Heaven is not a hopeful place until you have tasted the bitterness of the results of the fall in this life. So the more mournful experiences that you have in this life, 
the more tribulation that you have, the more loss that you have, the more bitterness that you have, the more comfort we receive because we know that the new heavens and the new earth will be the opposite of every bitter experience that we have. That death will be no more. That our King will wipe the tears from our face. There will be no more cancer. There will be no more infant deaths. There will be no more car accidents. There will be no more spouses not waking up in the morning because they died in the night. There will be no more sin. The flesh will have victory no longer. There will be no more effects of the sin. And so the more we mourn over the realities of our own sin and the consequences of sin in this world, the more beautiful that comfort becomes. Because we know that when our King returns, all things will be restored. That we groan inwardly for this restoration, creation groans inwardly for the restoration. And the more mournful we are, the more comfort we receive, the more comfort we receive, the more blessed we are in Christ. For that is why the blessed can say, or the mournful can say, blessed are the mournful, for they shall be comforted. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.